meine liebste Frau Wanda. Ich bin Gott sei Dank angekommen, auf einem wunderschönen Platz angekommen. Es sind my dearest Miss Wanda, I have arrived, thank God, in a beautiful place. There are small rooms. I live with Laura again and with another girl. We have everything we need. Everything is comfortable and good. Dear Miss Wanda, I'm sad that I had to leave my dear benefactor, whom I love so much and feel that she loves me. For the time being, I cannot write about many things because we have only just arrived and I want to write immediately. There's a radio and a gramophone. We can go, come, without asking permission. I would like to ask something. Maybe I could get some Hungarian books from dear Miss Wanda and also the one with poems. If it's not possible, then I have not asked. Please write me a lot. More next time. I kiss the children and the miss very much. And my dear, dear Miss Wanda, I kiss very, very much. Bercy. P.S. I'm learning German diligently. You're listening to For the Living and the Dead, Trace of the Holocaust, a podcast brought to you by the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure. I'm Kevania de Vries Menig. In each episode, we talk about an object that tells us more about the Holocaust and, in this case, its aftermath. This time, we will talk about a heart-shaped memory booklet made out of paper. On each small, heart-shaped leaf, little messages have been written Nowadays, this object is in the collection of the recently opened Swedish Holocaust Museum in Stockholm. Originally, it was a handcrafted gift from Elizabeth, the woman we heard from in the opening, for someone she deeply cared about. In this episode, I am joined by Yael Fried, curator at the Swedish Holocaust Museum. Yael, welcome to this podcast. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about this small paper object for which we don't even really have a proper name? Uh, I would call it a memory book. Uh, it has the shape of a heart. Uh, it looks like a box. It's clad in, in a purple textile, uh, a very thin material uh, called rayon, used for making underwear. And around it, it has little pink tassels and a pink uh, embroidery on top with the initials VL, uh, which stand for the name of the recipient of this gift. And uh, what's nice is that you think it's a box and you open it up and it folds out. It looks like a four-leaf clover where the yeah. leaves are uh, notebook leaves and there are little um, greetings and a, and a note from the person who made the, the book. Uh, in written in Romanian and German, and the date. Yeah, so who made this particular book, and do we know why that person made it? Well, we assume that the person who made it is Elizabeth Solomon. That's the name written inside. Uh, and she writes, uh, remember me and I love you. And uh, we've seen many examples of these kind of uh, books or uh, or boxes, similar looking, all over Sweden. I think it was something therapeutic, um, something to do uh, for these women who, who were cared for in Sweden, in various hospitals. But I also think it's a, it's a way for them to sort of get their identity back.
There are books, there are tablecloths, uh, pillowcases. All of them tend to have a name and often uh, their home country. And so my understanding of this is that it's uh, here I am. I'm a person, I have a name, I come from somewhere. Uh, these objects, in a way, they mirror other little objects that we know of uh, that were made in the camps or in the ghettos. And we also have an interview uh, found in a newspaper with one of these women who, were, uh, who was there with Elizabeth. Uh, and she says that this is the same thing that we did in the ghetto when we were hiding and there was nothing else to do. Uh, and we know uh, that these little objects were often given as gifts and I think that this can be seen as a, it can be understood also as a way of, of surviving, of re retaining your humanity, uh, and perhaps also a way of resistance. Uh, it was absolutely forbidden to have these and make these little trinkets. There's something very moving in their ability to also express their gratitude with similar objects uh, and the efforts and the skill in making them. They're very well made. It was also a way for them to to train and to have a profession. They were making clothes and uh, other things and sewing so they could work. And it was also, I think, partly considered a suitable activity for women uh, to make these sort of things. But they're very personal and, and I think there's so much information in them uh, about these individuals. Wow, so we assume this was made by Elizabeth. Do we know any more about her? Uh, we have looked in the records, and, and what we can see and what we have information about is that she was born in February 1917 in uh, Romania, in Targu Mures, or in the Hungarian name uh, Maras Vasari. Uh, she was Hungarian-speaking, and sometimes he, she uses her Hungarian name, uh, Bezi. Yeah. And... Uh, from that information we have, we can see that she had uh, a sister who was likely murdered in Auschwitz and possibly one other sister. Uh, Elizabeth was taken to several camps before being moved to Bergen-Belsen, where she was at liberation. And from there, she came to Lübeck in the British Field Hospital, where the Swedish Red Cross came to pick people up to take for, to Sweden for uh, hospital care. Dear Miss Wanda, I believe that Bersi has written everything about our life. We are very happy with everything. We have not been to the city yet, but they say it is beautiful and bigger than Zigtuna. I wish you all the best. I kiss the hands of Miss Wanda and the whole family. Laura. We have these letters uh, that also includes this other girl, uh, Laura. And from what they express in the letters, we seem that they're very close and they are 13 years apart. So we think that it might be her cousin because Laura's mother also shares a last name with Elizabeth. But we don't know for sure. Uh, the records we have also say that they both leave Sweden for Romania in 1946. And this is where, where our information ends. Uh, I'm still searching, but I haven't been able to find out more yet. So, Yael, you just mentioned all these letters and more information that was found from Elizabeth. 
is there anything else that we can have of her that gives us more of an indication of who she was and what she's been through and who was around her at that time? Uh, yes, she wrote letters and she also sent postcards uh, to this caregiver, Wanda, which we have in our archives. Um, and she also wrote a greeting in another memory book uh, from someone else. That, that's just a regular uh, notebook. Uh, but she also seems to have given uh, Wanda a little ceramic medallion. Uh, it's the town seal. Uh, and another girl also left one for Wanda. And perhaps they were gifts to them from the town where they lived when they were mm -hmm. uh, cared for. And they passed them on. Perhaps it was something they themselves bought as a, as a memory and then uh, gave. But her name is on that little box. Uh, and there are also photographs. We have a photo album, uh, but so far we haven't been able to identify all the faces. Uh, but it's quite possible that we have an image of Elizabeth, uh, but we don't know. And you just mentioned Wanda, and I believe her name was Wanda Lancer. Could you tell us a bit more about her and the role that she played in Elizabeth's life? Uh, well, Wanda Lancer uh, was born in Vienna. Uh, to Polish Jewish parents in 1896. Uh, and as a young girl, she moved with her parents to Lemberg in Krakow. So she moved around and later studied uh, at the University of Vienna uh, for economy historian called mm -hmm. Runeberg. And she later worked for the social science study library at the Chamber of Labor at the city of Vienna. Uh, but in 1934, she was dismissed for political reasons. And after Anschluss, her husband uh, disappeared under mysterious circumstances. And so she, and he was declared dead after the war. Uh, but with the help of, of the Swedish Social Democrats, uh, Lanzer and her two daughters were able to flee to Sweden in the spring of 1939, uh, where she also uh, was in close contact with other Austrian emigrants. And at this time, it was very difficult for Jews to enter Sweden. Uh, so I think it's worth noting that she was able to do that and to come here uh, due to her political contacts. Uh, and when in Sweden, uh, among other things, she worked for the town hall. And after 1945, she became a supervisor and interpreter for the rescued concentration camp prisoners. And partly she worked at uh, this town called Sigtuna, outside of Stockholm, uh, where she cared for uh, hundreds of girls, and among them were Elizabeth and Laura. And she also worked at the uh, Jewish community's emigration desk, so she helped them uh, find relatives and uh, get in, in contact with them. Uh, and that's how she also kept track of all these women, so that's why also, we know that they, uh, where they were and when they left Sweden. Uh, and later, she also worked at the Stockholm Archives of the Labour Movement. Um, and this was, this was a conscious way of offering work to intellectual refugees. And there were other German-speaking refugees working in these archives. Uh, and later, she returned to Vienna, uh, where she also died in 1980. Uh, and her family still lives in Sweden, and it's, it's from them that we have received all of this material.
So Wanda went through a lot of traumatic experiences herself, and still she managed to be this well, beacon of hope for all these other people who fled to Sweden. Now we know that a lot of people came to Sweden on the white boats. Could you tell us a bit more about that? In June 1945, uh, after the end of the war, uh, Sweden agreed to receive 10,000 former prisoners of concentration camps for medical care. And this was to be administered by the uh, UNRRA, the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which was formed in 1943 by the Allies to administer the humanitarian aid. And these refugees, they came from many different countries, uh, but around half of them were from Poland. And the original idea was for them to receive medical care and then return to their countries of origin within six months. And there were uh, five ships that went back and forth to Sweden, a total of 36 times to pick up uh, people uh, during about a month. And they were both cargo and passenger ships. Uh, and for example, one uh, was a boat that previously went to America. Others were smaller. Uh, they were repurposed and equipped with berths and medical supplies. And of course, uh, with staff. And three weeks after this decision, they were sent uh, from Sweden, uh, escorted to Germany by German minesweepers. Uh, through the Baltic, and it was when they arrived. It was the the British um, who chose which patients should go to Sweden, uh, and the Swedish authorities had requested that only those who were fit for travel and who were expected to be well and healthy again should come. Uh, but this was, of course, not how it actually worked out. Uh, the medical state of many of these patients was much worse than the Swedes had imagined. Uh, about half of them suffered from tuberculosis and some were in such bad shape that they did not even survive the transport to Sweden and were uh, buried upon arrival. And this operation became known uh, popularly as the white boats or the white ships. Uh, I think people see this as a, as a parallel to the white buses operation. Uh, which is a lot more uh, well-known. And I think perhaps people don't know so much about this, uh, but in a way, I think it was through this that the atrocities of the Holocaust really became known to the public in Sweden. We brought on the boat, Prince Karl, uh, Red Cross uh, was signed, the Red Cross sign on the boat, and we sailed off. Uh, this took two days sailing, uh, it was uh, slow. And uh, well, I was still on the stretcher and I didn't... Uh, well, I have seen the cliffs uh, along the road and uh, there was some wind, there was some green which I haven't seen for years of the imprisonment. Uh, ghetto, in the ghetto there, was, there were no trees, I don't remember any. And then in the camps there was just sand and stones and uh, no, not anything green. And we arrived in Norrköping, the harbor of Norrköping. This was on a Sunday 
Sunday morning on the, whether it was the 1st of July, I think, because we sailed on the 27th, which, which is the day, the death date of my sister. And it took some two days. And then we arrived in North Shipping, which was completely alien to me. I didn't recognize anything. The, the cliffs were good to look at because it was so quiet. And we got food on the boat, but I don't think I could eat anything or drink. And there in the harbor, there were plenty of journalists, but they were kept at a distance because we were in quarantine. We were to be in quarantine for three weeks, actually. And uh, they were seemed very horrified, those people. One could see it in their faces. They have never seen such uh, people like us, uh, completely uh, like living skeletons. The patients were taken and distributed all over the country, and they often came very close to people. They were in small towns, and we know of many lifelong relationships that formed uh, with the local population as well. Uh, for example, in this uh, Sigtuna, which is a small town where Elizabeth came. And many of these uh, people left Sweden after a while, like Elizabeth, uh, but quite a few stayed and built their lives here. And some, unfortunately, uh, didn't get to live very long lives and are buried uh, here in Sweden. So Sweden was neutral during World War II. So this was, you would say this was maybe the first time they really got into contact with what was happening. Well, I think this was the... It was in the, in the news. I, I don't think anyone... Uh, could have said that they didn't know uh, that late. But I think it's when it became very obvious to people and this was publicized and it was, uh, uh, there were so many comparative as well. Uh, uh, about ni over 9,000 uh, former uh, concentration camp prisoners were brought to Sweden and they were, they were in terrible shape. Um, and I think this this really became obvious to people what they had uh, been through. And we can also read that, for example, to Siktuna, there were many people who donated material for them to work with. Uh, so probably this little memory book is made of uh, <laughs> scrap uh, material that uh, local people uh, gave to them. So you're the curator of the Swedish Holocaust Museum. And because Sweden was neutral during the war, people might wonder why it would it need a Holocaust museum? Derek, what you just told us, could you tell us a bit more? Well, I mean, you could say that the Holocaust is, of course, a tragedy for all of humankind. And Sweden is part of Europe and hasn't been left untouched by the aftermath and the effects uh, of the Holocaust. And as we've heard, many survivors came to Sweden and made a life for themselves here. And Jews living in Sweden at the time had relatives elsewhere. Um, and in fact, Sweden was the only country that doubled its Jewish population after the Holocaust. Uh, people live in, and have always lived across borders. And of course, the Holocaust is also of relevance to a Swedish audience, uh, given that it's so close to other countries that were under Nazi occupation. And, and the fact that Sweden was officially neutral uh, doesn't mean that it's 
uh, irrelevant either or plays no part of what happens in Europe. Uh, Sweden had a very restrictive immigration policy that showed to be fatal. And conversely, the rescue efforts of, for example, Wallenberg saved many lives. Uh, and also, it has been a request of survivors that the state should take an active responsibility to preserve archives, objects, and uh, collect testimonies. Uh, there are other Holocaust collections in Sweden, uh, but a new museum is a signal that it's taken seriously. And especially now that we're standing um, before a new chapter in history when there are no survivors at all. And we must also not forget, I think, that um, anti-Semitism and anti-Roma sentiments uh, were and still are uh, all too common here as well. And these are issues to be dealt with by all of society and all countries. Uh, we need to strengthen our resilience and prevent such a thing from happening again. Uh, and that is, of course, also relevant uh, for Sweden. I just wanted to ask, so you and I, we first met during a European Holocaust Research Infrastructure Meeting. Do you see the benefits of a European infrastructure for Holocaust research? Do you think ERI would be interesting for Swedish Holocaust research? Oh, certainly. Uh, there's so much more to discover and research in terms of Sweden and the Holocaust. And I know that with, with all these digitizing projects of archives and collections, we learned a lot that was previously unknown to us. Uh, we can connect the archives better. We don't have to travel to several countries uh, yeah. to know what's in them. And uh, for example, regarding uh, correspondence, uh, sometimes uh, we know one half is in another country and then turns out the other half is in Sweden. So we need to connect them and digitizing and having a research infrastructure brings, uh, brings many benefits to us, of course. Yael, thank you very much for joining our podcast and talking to us about this lovely little box and about Elizabeth and Wanda and, of course, about Sweden. Well, thank you. Uh, it was great to be part of this. And I, I would like to add that uh, perhaps uh, some of our listeners know more about this person, Elizabeth Solomon, uh, and can let us know about it. That would be great. You've been listening to For the Living and the Dead, Trace of the Holocaust, a podcast brought to you by the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure. I'm Kivania de vries -Meinig. Special thanks go to Jael Fried of the Swedish Holocaust Museum in Stockholm. Fragments of the testimony of Helena Noyar are from the archives of the USC Shoah Foundation, the Institute for Visual History and Education. If you'd like to know more, about the work of the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure, you can find us online at eri-project.eu. That's e-h-r-i-project.eu. ERI is funded by the European Union. <laughs>